do you love audiobooks? You can get a free 30-day trial membership to audible.com by visiting audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. They have thousands of audiobook titles, as well as podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, and exclusive Audible originals you won't find anywhere else. Get your free trial membership at audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. Welcome to the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast, a show exploring the lives of professional musicians of all types, touring musicians, recording artists, songwriters, engineers, bar bands, wedding bands, and anyone making their living in the music industry. Whether you've dreamed of being a professional or you already are one, this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Eric Baines, and I hope that you not only find some entertainment here, but also some helpful tips, trade secrets, and ideas that will help you achieve your dreams. I try to keep these episodes down to less than an hour and a half. Really, I'd like to be closer to an hour, but I, I fail at it every single time. Because um, as a listener of podcasts and a fan of podcasts, I, I kind of prefer a little shorter. They're, they're easy to take in during the day, you know, an hour, an hour and 15, you know, maybe 53 minutes might be the ideal to me. But um, I wanted to reach out to you as the listener to get your opinions on what you think and if this is a good length and if you're enjoying this or if this is usually too much. This episode will be split into two different episodes uh, because it just, and it, it went long. We, we, were, we talked over two hours and we mentioned that in the podcast. So don't be confused because the, the they, at the end of the day, I think the podcast will be about an hour and 25 minutes, but we do mention that we went over two hours, which we did. We talked for two hours and then I edited it down over the course of 12 hours or so. <laughs> it is a lot of work. But uh, anyways, let me know what you think about the length of a podcast and whether these are good or bad. You can email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com. You could comment on, on YouTube if you wanted. You could hit me up on Instagram. I'm divebarrockstar. Or there's the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast uh, page on Facebook. So anyway, you can get a hold of me. Let me know what you think. I'd, I'd love to hear your opinions. And speaking of my guest, we've been friends for 20 years. He's one of the first people that I met when I moved out to L.A. He's the author of the book, The Amazing Adventures of a Marginally Successful Musician, which is a really, really fun read. It ties in really well with what this, you know, what the mission statement of this podcast is. It's all about working musicians. He's toured and recorded with many, many people. Uh, a few of which, Peter Asher, Boz Skaggs, The Fray, Jerry and the Pacemakers, Denny Lane, Chad and Jeremy, The Bass City Rollers, Graham Nash, Lyle Lovett, Stevie Nicks, Zoe Deschanel. He was also the last touring bassist with Neil Diamond before Neil retired. And he played on a couple records with Neil as well. So he's a great guy. He's a great bass player. He's a great singer. Uh, so please enjoy my conversation with Bill Sinkei. We first met at the Brass Elephant. I don't know if you even remember, but the first time I ever walked in there was a Wednesday night, and there was like, you guys were having a singer-songwriter night at some point on Wednesdays. I think it was you and um, Eric Stegen mm -hmm. on keyboards and Christopher Alice 
Maybe, yeah. And uh, Bobby Williams. Yeah. And uh, I walked in, and at the time, I was a, a guy who played numerous bars and didn't drink as well. <laughs> I ordered a Diet Coke, and Dave at the bar just <laughs> almost died laughing. And it was it was pretty funny. Now, do you remember that night, though? Do you Because yeah. you were pretty new to L.A. at the time, or? Yeah. I, <clears throat> I, I'm thinking that was maybe January. I had moved here in October. Okay. I'll tell you how well I remember that night. Okay. I was playing... I have a I had a tiny little bass amp and our good friend the dearly departed Bobby Williams who you know yes. was one of our great friends. Yeah. Bobby says to me um I I was I was doing a, I was doing a lot of different stuff at the time so I didn't really com- I couldn't really commit to every Wednesday at this place at the Brass Elephant. So Bobby said, "Look, if you don't mind, um maybe I'll bring in guys to kind of audition while you're here." And I said, "Of course." This one night he said, I just got a call from this guy, Eric. I think he's from Colorado and he's going to come in and I hope that's not uncomfortable for you. And I said, no. Now, if you remember, you walked in and I came over and said hello to you right away because I was like, no, I want this guy to feel comfortable. I was looking at the amp with you saying, okay, if you want to adjust it, I don't care. Right. And now maybe I'll embarrass you. Okay. Because... (laughs) I'm thinking, well, this poor young kid from the mountains of Colorado doesn't know anything about the big city, so <laughs> I'm going to be the daddy here and take him under my wing and show him. And this guy named Eric Baines, who I've never heard of, never seen, gets up and plays and sings so so well, so ridiculously well. And uh, I looked at Bobby. I said, well, I guess the gig is in good hands now because... <laughs> I was thinking of quitting. I think now I just got fired because you were you were stellar. You were you were great. <laughs> well, but I remember. But I remember thinking, like you know, well, you're younger than I am, and I'm gonna show you the ropes here and show you about the amp. Right, right. You did just fine. You <laughs> well, did just fine. Well, thank you. I wasn't fishing for that story. <laughs> no, no. I remember it. I I was surprised that you remembered it. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say that it was interesting because I came from Denver and uh, and I I came up through the bars, mm-hmm. you know three four or five nights a week um so it was that that uh atmosphere wasn't new to me by any means but you know it's a it's a sort of di- at that time it was now there was well it doesn't exist now but eventually there was a big stage on the other side this was just like a tiny bar at the time you guys were playing behind a pole oh there was a pole right in the way you couldn't yeah. put the speakers up you had to put one of the speakers on the walkway up to the restroom right if you remember um, yeah exactly and so if you walked into a bar that was like that in Denver, generally the band's probably not going to be very good. I don't want to put anybody down from Denver. It's a great, there's right. tons of awesome musicians, but not as many as LA. And it was, it just struck me when I walked in, I was like, this is a Wednesday night in Monrovia, which if you're not familiar with LA, it's, it's barely even in LA. It's, it's yes. you know, it's out past Pasadena. That's what everybody says. <laughs> like, like beyond Pasadena, everything is a Thelma and Louise, right? You go yeah, right yeah, off the yeah. cliff. It's the flat earth society. <laughs> There's something out there past Pasadena, but we don't know what it is. You know? Right. Right. Uh, so I was just struck by this, the quality of musicianship and the songs. And, and I was like, I'm, it was just more evidence that I'd made the right decision of moving out here, you know? Well, I remember hearing you your, awesome. well, thank you. I mean, that was, that was a cool little band and it was a kind of a goofy little place, but I remember yeah. specifically, um, you know, I probably handed you my card and we traded numbers and I honestly kind of watched you rise up uh, through <laughs> the ranks because I started hearing from my other friends. Yeah, there's a bass player, Eric. And I said, 
Eric Baines? Yeah, I, I don't know much about him. I go, no, I, I know him. I met him six mm -hmm. months ago and a year ago and two years ago. And, you know, I, uh, I was there oh. when you played the Staples Center. <laughs> oh, wow. Really? Yes. I was in the audience that's, when you were playing. Did you with, come with Bobby? With High School Musical, yes. Yeah, that's right. He, you, it was like 10 people that that Bobby had and you guys had. Yeah, we came uh, with 10 people. There was another 22,000 well, ahead yes, of us. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and that was you and, our, of course, our, our great friend, Chad Wright, the yes. greatest drummer in the world who has also been on this show. And yeah, uh, yeah wow. I mean, if, if you folks out there in... Uh, in podcast land, ever get a chance to hear Eric and Chad play as a rhythm section? It's it's pretty special. I mean, I've had the pleasure, you know, the pleasure of being on stage in front of you guys singing while you guys are playing, and it's kind of it's a bit of a freight train. I mean, you guys are the greatest well, rhythm section in town. Well, you know? thank you. I, I, you get to be on the show every week now. I'm a, I'm a pretty good wingman. <laughs> yeah, I'm the I'm like the Ed McMahon on these kind of shows. But well, well, that's interesting. I I, I honestly. Uh, didn't expect that story, but it's uh, that's kind of cool. I mean, for one, it's that means we've known each other for twenty years almost. October yeah. will be twenty years of me being here, yeah, which is kind of awesome. And uh, and the brass elephant then became me and Bobby were best friends for years up until he died, and and I ended up being at the brass elephant sometimes four nights a week because that you know that's yeah. just, we just hung out there and then you know we since we played there so often the drinks were always free. So <laughs> another know. good reason to be there. <laughs> But uh, speaking of Bobby, he was a a band leader that, um, how do I put this? Like on stage, he would kind of just call whatever songs. Mm -hmm. And if you kind of knew it, great. And it was almost he prefer, preferred that you didn't know it because he enjoyed to mess with the arrangements. And it was a very, you had to be on your toes musically, and uh, which was a lot of fun. But at the same time sometimes it was frustrating if I really knew the song and I really missed a part that wasn't on there. And, and I wonder what your take on it, um, as a, you know, you've played, you know, 5,500 gigs, apparently all of them, all of them, not bars of it, yeah. you know, obviously, but honestly, uh, I, this is amazing that you would say this because a lot of the time I really did not like it. Uh -huh. Now I learned to love it. And if I can, this is hardly dropping a name because it's most people under the age of maybe 55 won't even know who this person is. But <laughs> back, I did all the British invasion people, as you know, I did you right. know, Peter and Gordon and Chad and Jeremy and the searchers and, you know, on and mm. on. But one of the guys that was a big Beatle, uh, you know, part of the Beatles story was a guy by the name of Tony Sheridan. If you've ever heard oh, of him. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, I think Tony passed away a couple of years ago, but I got the chance to play with Tony. Wow. Now, here is why I bring this up. Our friend Bobby that we were talking about that would put us in these situations where you, he didn't even yell out a key and he would play a fast song really slow. He'd play a slow song like a cha-cha, whatever, right? Just mm -hmm. whatever film. Right. The great Tony Sheridan. And when I played on the 60s circuit with him, he was a big deal, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this was, uh, we played in Las Vegas. He walks out and just says to the band, I'm just going to play what I feel. And I felt like, those 500 gigs that I did at the Brass Elephant under those conditions, here I am in front of 1,200 people with Tony Sheridan, just, I won't even try the accent, but just, no, bro, it's okay, just whatever. That's really, that was the rehearsal, right? Wow. He walks out on stage and I felt, wow, I'm really prepared for this. Mm -hmm. I'm really prepared for this. Mm -hmm. I could not have planned that. 
this guy was never going to send you CDs or charts. I don't read charts anyway, but I mean, he, there was less than zero preparation, you know? Yeah. And it really felt very comfortable. And I had to kind of giggle at myself while I was doing it because I, I was very present, if I can use that word, you know, where I was, I was, as I was playing, it sounded great. The band sounded great. And all I could think of was everything about this was completely unplanned. And yet I was prepared. How does that happen? Yeah. You know? So, you know, the idea of learning things from a bar gig, probably not evident after you've driven through a snowstorm and hauled your amp up three flights of steps <laughs> and played to nobody. But it obviously, you know, it, it does work out. I was yeah. not a fan of playing as a trio. Mm. I was not a fan of that kind of loose, uh, almost jam band stuff. And yet it worked out many times in my life to, to really you know, be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. So, yeah, well, it is a, it's just another thing in your trick bag. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. You have done a lot of bars and you mentioned that you, 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 uh, aren't a drinker. Never had a drink. Um, I'll steal a little story from my book. Essentially I say, I've never had a cigarette. I've, I've never smoked pot, even now that it's legal or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I, I've never done anything close to an illegal drug. I've never had, uh, a, a glass of wine. I've never had a beer. And I cannot technically say I've never had a drink. And this is, I'll make the story kind of fast, ah. but um, I have an older brother. My older brother, Steve, is actually a great musician in his own right. And he was, as I always say, the first musician I ever I ever knew. Right? So he was in the service and he came home. He's 11 years older than I am. So when I was, uh, I was somewhere around 13, 14, he came, he was home and he was sitting with a friend. He was having a drink. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's that? He said, oh, it's called a screwdriver. I had one. He poured another one. I had another one. And I thought, wow, this is cool. I'm drinking with my older brother. This is, you know, right. in that in that adolescent mindset. Mm -hmm. So I was just a good kid. Right? I never cut school. I never played hooky. I never smoked cigarettes. The only thing I did was get into fistfights. That's what I did. So I got old enough. I got to be 19. And in New York, the drinking age was 19. Right. I'm in my first band and now after every rehearsal twice a week, we'd go out to this, you know, the cool bars and, and try to meet women, which was so incredibly unsuccessful. <laughs> but um, my first time getting ready to have a drink, I'll go up to the bar. I said, give me a, a screwdriver. It gives me a, oh, it's terrible. I let it sit. I did the same thing for about, and I'm trying not to exaggerate, but really it was probably two months. Every Thursday night we'd go out I'd order a screwdriver. I'd take half a sip. It was terrible. I was asking every bartender in New York, can you change the glass? Can you change the ice? Was the orange juice bad? It was just terrible. Mm -hmm. And people were laughing at me. They go, why are you spending whatever it was at the time? You know, this is 1977, but you know, right. you're spending <laughs> three bucks. Minimum wage was $2.15. So spending three bucks on a drink. Right. And they said, why do you do that? You know, you, you're just leaving them all over the, the thing. You know, I called my brother and I said, Steve, you know, this is funny. I said, apparently you're the best bartender in the world because you're the only one that makes a screwdriver that I can drink. And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, remember 10 years ago, <laughs> it was seven years ago. He said, that was orange juice. That, I, did, I would never give my little brother at 13 years old. <laughs> and I said, but you told me. And he said, you had three of them in 15 minutes. If a 13 year old kid had oh three screwdrivers, God. you would have passed out. I went six or seven years really thinking, hey, I've been drinking. Wow. So if I took that, what would you call it? The accumulative 
you know, putting all those sips together, it right. might have been half a drink. Somewhere along the line, I have ordered 40 screwdrivers and drank a total of one half, I guess. Or, right. Oh my gosh, that's funny. So, but yeah, so I, I'm I'm just super clean living, and yeah. it 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 takes on a different uh, conversation virtually every night. Somewhere it gets into this conversation. Yeah. Every bar I've ever sat at, someone offers it, to buy right. me a drink, and we have to go through the story, and then a bartender says, "Come on, ask Bill," and somebody else says something, and they make a joke out of it and send me a drink, and. It's it's horrific for me. To be <laughs> well, honest. I'm sorry to bring it up. <laughs> no, no, no. It's it's very. It's this is very. Uh, well, I was going to say like because I, when I first started playing, I I was kind of, I would drink maybe like quarterly, you know, but <laughs> never at the job, never on the job. And if I had to drive anywhere, forget mm -hmm. it, you know. So I spent a lot of time in bars, you know, sober, and it's not the fun. You know, do you, how do you get through it? I guess is, is the, do you still enjoy playing clubs and bars? Because it seems like you do. I love it. I love it. But what's, what's really, <laughs> how do you do with drunks? I see. Th this is the funny thing as I've forgive me. Cause I'm certainly not making fun of anybody who has, you know, a problem. Right. I, I've already said, I know nothing about alcohol, but I'm an expert on alcoholics, you know, because <laughs> I dealt with them. Right. And what's always interesting to me is because I'm the only sober one by one o'clock in the morning, right? Everybody's, even the bartenders have had drinks at that point. Um, I am like the bellwether. So on Monday morning, when people say, wow, did you see Jimmy the other night? Wow, did you see? And I'm thinking, no, I saw you with Jimmy and you were drinking as much as he was. Everybody thinks the other person drank right. more. Everybody thought the other person was embarrassing themselves. Mm. And I'm sitting there I hate to be judge and jury. You're, you're the ref. Yeah. Yeah, you. Yeah. I, got the, I got the lowdown. Right. So. That's very interesting. You're a good person to have around, actually. I, or a horrible person, because I'm the one who, who busts you. you right, know, so. right, right, right. Well, it's funny that you already kind of brought it up, but I, we, I, I talk a lot about college on here, because I went to Berkeley for a minute and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But I think that the whole bar thing is an education that you can't really buy. And, right. and, and you know, it... it it replaces a lot of stuff, you know, in a way. You already kind of mentioned that be, being, it, it helped prepare you for this gig. You know, are there, there are other things that you think you got out of playing in the bars that you, you know, wouldn't get out of a school? Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure I got a lot of things. I, the, the idea of, the idea of going to school, which you did, um, you read charts, you know how to read music. Mm. Um, I have no idea. I really, if you grabbed a guitar right now and pointed at a fret on the string, I wouldn't know what it is. And that's right. the truth. Got you. If you say, gee, yeah, I got that. But if you said, oh, add the, you know, the six with the minor, whatever, I, I can play it by ear, but I don't know what you're talking about. Right. The thing about bars, um, playing as often as I did, I played guitar for a while. And then I'd play bass. And then he'd play with a five-piece band, then a two-piece band, and a wedding band. And so the idea of the whole bar thing was you walked in sometimes with different people and the different singer would play it in a different key or the drummer would play it faster or you'd play in this little place where you're stacked on top of each other. So it was more than just the music. Right. It wasn't just reading notes on the page or learning songs. It was the whole groove of getting into, I have to get there early enough to set up, still splash some water on my face so I don't look like I just rolled out of bed. <laughs> um, if I have any kind of cheat sheets, I have to put them where I can see them because you're in a bar. There's not like spotlights and you don't have a road crew helping you out. Right. The entire soup to nuts, as they say, 
there's no better place to get it than in a bar. Yeah. You know, because you know that you have to load through the back door and walk through the kitchen. And <laughs> yeah. And so I, that's, that was, that's an art unto itself. I think a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah. Not to mention playing for four hours at a pop, you know. Oh, and being on your feet. Yes, <laughs> yeah. just standing up that long. You know, you're on yeah, these cement totally. floors with a, 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 you know, a shag rug thrown over it. Yeah. And that's your stage. And my God, my my thighs were aching <laughs> by midnight. <laughs> going, I'm getting too old for this. Right. Well, it's interesting. You said from, you know, you saw me from the Brass Element to the Stable Center. And now you have gone from the Brass Elephant to uh, one of the biggest, you know, gigs in the world, Neil Diamond. Neil Diamond, yeah, uh, that was quite a transformation for me. So, how did that gig come up? Wow, this could be this could be the uh, the three parter that will take twelve hours. <laughs> is but there is there a twenty minute version? I'll cut it in half so it's only six <laughs> hours long. Believe me, your listening audience is going to love it. Yeah, yeah. The um, essentially what happened was this: I had just gotten off a plane that day. I was doing the British Invasion thing with Denny Lane from Wings, um, Terry Sylvester from The Hollies, wow. uh, Mike Pender from uh, the, uh, the Searchers, and it was with also with Peter Asher and with uh, uh, Chad and Jeremy. So it was just a great wow. bunch of stuff. Uh, <laughs> my rhythm mate was Liberty DeVito, great drummer from Billy never, Joel. Never heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> Who just came out with a book. I wouldn't mind my, my buddy Liv. Oh, cool. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, just to go a, a sideline. I have a, a uh, I think I think it's a Facebook message or a text from him from about five years ago mm. where he sends me a note and says, hey, Bill, I love your book. I've been thinking of writing one for years. I, and I wrote back and went, well, you know, as soon as you write it, I'll buy it. <laughs> Liberty's book just came out oh, that's so last cool. month. So it's a great book if anybody wants to buy it. Oh, that's so great. I'm fly home and anybody who's ever been on the road knows this feeling. You know, you, you get off the plane, you go home. There's no food in your refrigerator because you didn't go shopping because you've been gone. I have a mm. bag full of laundry that I have to do. I haven't been to the bank, all this stuff. Right. So I'm running around town doing that stuff and I get the phone call and I can't hear what the guy's saying because my earpiece, my ears are stopped up from the plane and the guy starts talking and I said, uh, can you repeat that please? I, I'm sorry, I did not hear what you said. And the guy in this very serious voice like this says, yeah, Bill, um, anyway, we need a bass player and you come highly recommended. And I said, great, what's the name of the band? Now, he had already said this, but I didn't hear it. That first 15 right. seconds. So uh, I said, what's the name of the band? And he said, uh, Neil Diamond. And I waited for the word tribute. <laughs> right? Because I'm thinking <laughs> it's a course. Neil Diamond tribute band. And again, right. I've told this story so many times, and it's almost word for word. But I, uh, mm. I said, wow, what, you know, who recommended me? And he said, uh, well... Don Waz. Now, Don Waz is a magnificent producer, has been around right. for a long time, done great things. Yeah. And I said, well, that's interesting because I don't really know Don. I, now, I had met him uh -huh. at a gig years and years ago. Where he just went, hey, man, sounds great. That kind of thing. Right, right. right. <laughs> and so the manager, you know, guy on the management team uh, says, well, is this your address? Is this where you live? Is this your phone number? Obviously, you, you answered the phone. Here's your email address. And no, this is, I have it from his office. It says, I'll call Bill and something to the effect of, he's a good guy and he's a good hang, mm -hmm. which I came to realize how important that is. No right. kidding. Because there's a lot of great players that he, he, with all due respect to their talent, 
you don't necessarily want to be on a plane and a boat and a train and on stage and eating with them mm-hmm. three times a day if 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 you can't get along with them. Right. So as the story progressed, he said, Sam is his name. Sam cool. says, can I call you back and work out some of the details? I'd like to see you sometime this week. I said, okay. In the next three hours, he called me about six times. Everything was hey, look, can we do this? Can we do that? And the last phone call was at almost nine o'clock at night. And he says, look, I know this is kind of weird, but can you come in tomorrow? I don't even have time to send you charts or CDs. I don't even have a song list for you. Can you just come in? And my response was, hey, no problem. I'm an Italian from New York. This stuff doesn't scare me. Let's go. Let's roll. (laughs) And he said, great. The next day I walked in at three o'clock. I spoke to the management and the engineer for about 15 or 20 minutes. And they said, okay, come out into the studio. I was by myself with headphones, no band. They played me a track and said, just go, you know, just play. (laughs) I did that for two songs. And I'm thinking, first of all, there's no, I don't have a chance in hell of getting this gig. (laughs) I don't read a note. I play left-handed and upside down. There's nothing about this that's for me. Even though I would love it, but there's there's no chance in hell of me getting this gig. And there's that terrible feeling where I'm sitting in the main room with headphones on they're behind the glass. I don't know what they're saying. For all I know, they're saying, oh my God, what a waste of time. I don't right. know that there's not 15 guys in the lobby waiting to come in because I was thinking it was a cattle call. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm sitting there and it was probably 15 seconds, but it felt like an eternity. And the overhead voice says, um, Bill, do you want a sandwich or something? A cup of coffee? I said, no, I'm, I'm good. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to grab my stuff and get out of here because you know we have other people to see. And there's another pause... And he said, do you have a couple of minutes? And I said, sure. I thought they were going to boot up another song for me. They said, come on in. Well, as I walk through this door coming into the studio, into the control room, the other door swings open and this guy walks in and goes, I'm going to do my best impression. Okay, cool. Hey, Bill. Hi, I'm Neil. Neil Diamond. <laughs> and my response, good. I didn't mean to be a smart ass, but this was my response. Mm-hmm. I said, yeah, I know. I, I know who you are. You know, it's like what? What else do you say in that moment? Really, you know? Yeah. Um, so, before I go too much further, just he, Neil's the greatest guy in the world. Yeah. Really, the greatest boss, the greatest singer, the greatest songwriter. Wow. He's everything you would think. There is no meeting your idol, you know, and right. Don't meet your heroes. Feet of clay and all that stuff. No, he was great. So we're talking for a couple of minutes, and he says, uh, "Well, you know, we um, we're doing this promotional tour." We got that covered, but and this was in September, so it's actually mm-hmm. coming up on my anniversary. Um, mm-hmm. He said, "But here's what we'll do. This is the end of September. We'll be gone for a little while. If you can come back in November and we'll do a proper audition, we're doing a world tour in March, late February, March." He said, "If you could come back, and we'll do an audition with the band." And his words were a proper audition. Mm-hmm. I said, "Sure." The next thing he says, in you know, in the most Neil Diamond voice, was. You know, we'll send you the material and we'll give you time to do homework. And of course, we'll pay you for your homework. Thank you. I give him a copy of my book because I figure I'm never going to see him again anyway. I may as well. <laughs> I walk out the door and I'm thinking, well, if nothing else, I'll come back here and meet these guys and maybe I'll make 300 bucks for my, you know, for my homework. Right, right. That's a good right. gig. I'm, I'm fine. They'll know me. They'll think I'm a good guy. I won't get the gig, but you know, some big name guy will get it. Right. Um. So I pick up my girlfriend at work. We go home to my little apartment at the time in the, in the valley and the phone rings and it's Sam. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. mystical, magical Sam, I say to the girls, I say to my girlfriend and her daughter, I said, look, just look at the Chinese food menu. We'll order some food for dinner. I'm going to walk down the hall in my little apartment and take this phone call. Mm-hmm. So this is what Sam says. First of all, Bill, really appreciate you coming down on short notice. I know it was kind of a strange way to audition. I'm thinking, well, this doesn't sound good at all. At all, <laughs> at, all at all. And I said, yeah, I, I understand, Sam. Thank you. It was, thank you for the opportunity. I'm saying all the right things. I'm, I'm reading down the script of right things to say when you don't have the gig, that kind right, of thing. Right, right, right. You know, as you're being, as you're being told, <laughs> you know, you did really well. Right. Um, and I'm saying things like, no, I was just happy to be there. And, you know, it was great to meet the guy. And so Sam says these words. Well, uh, we understand that this was, you know, extraordinary circumstances to come in with no charts and kind of under a lot of pressure. But anyway, uh, Neil loved what he heard and he wanted to invite you to be the bass player on this promotional tour that we're doing. Wow. And I said, wow, great. When do we go? And he said, we leave on Sunday. And this was Wednesday Mm -hmm. uh, or Tuesday rather. Wow. And I said, no, maybe it was Wednesday. And I said, oh, and he said, do you need some time to look at your calendar? Now, this is one of my great lines. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> I said, yeah, let me look at my millennium at a glance. Nope, I don't think I'm doing anything for the next thousand years that would preclude me. <laughs> and he just went, okay. And I went, oh, come on. That was a, that was a good one. I, but um, so I said, well, what do we do now? And he said, well, come in tomorrow, fill out some forms, get measured for a shirt. Yeah. Wow. And then I came back the next day, which is Thursday, and sat with the guitar player and ran through, I don't know, a dozen songs, mm-hmm. some of which I knew, um, and which was funny because when I met Neil that first day, you know, he said, well, um, for instance, you know, I Am I Said, are you familiar with that song? And uh, have you heard the song? And I said... <laughs> Yes, because I live on this planet. <laughs> right. Is there anybody who doesn't know? Because I'm not 10. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I kind of had to laugh at myself with some of my answers. I don't, I don't know why I got the gig. Right. Um, I did one rehearsal, and the, these were not full shows. This was a promo tour. We were doing television shows, so we do two or three songs. But one of the things we did was, and I didn't know this ahead of time because we didn't even have time to talk about an itinerary. Mm-hmm. We did the London Palladium. And we did a one hour or an hour and a half special called One Night Only, which is still, you know, wow. I see it on television once in a while. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant. I mean, he, you know, it's great. And I remember being on stage saying, okay, this is the London Palladium. <laughs> the picture of the old Marvin Gaye live record is him standing on that. The next right. day we go over to the BBC and I'm standing there thinking, this is where the Stones, the Beatles and the London Philharmonic are you know, the London Symphony all played in this room. Right. And I realized that that's what happens on a Neil Diamond tour. Everything you do is three times bigger than, right. you know, than you thought. It's, uh, and my, <laughs> my two, my two, the two gems, you know, in my crown, so to speak, since I was a little kid, I'm a New Yorker, Madison Square Garden. Yes. Right. And, and the other one was the Hollywood Bowl because I had never yeah. been to California. I just used to look at that in magazines. Right. And I got to play both of them a couple of times. Mm-hmm. So there was really nothing about the Neil Diamond experience that was anything less than stellar for me. Wow. Um, and it uh, it was an interesting 
four years or three and a half years that I did it, you know, Neil has since retired. Mm-hmm. Um, I did actually get to record with him. Wow, I'm on two of the cool. records. Yeah, I'm on a Christmas record and I'm on the, he did a, a, a box set, like a 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And he, one of the things he really wanted to do was kind of drag a couple of the old songs out of mothballs that he never really finished. Oh, interesting. And I did a couple and played and there was no click track. If For those of you that might not be aware of this, you know, you record to a click track and then you take the click track off. So you, you know, the band right. is playing live. Well, there was no click track. So it was a different environment for those of you that are understanding wow. what I'm saying. Yeah. Because there were literally, it was tape from... 1982 or something you know oh so you're playing to previously recorded <clears throat> yeah, stuff yeah stuff oh. they kind of pulled out of the vault wow so there's nothing about the neil experience that was bad for me i mean there's just <laughs> great stories great stories yeah. about rehearsals great stories about dinner uh, you know it wasn't just oh look we played all these places it was right it, it was every every day was just a great experience oh that's so cool i love hearing that yeah no because not every gig is like that <laughs> oh, I've done the other ones. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A matter of fact, right. just to bridge these two things together, I have toured the United States playing radio shows, meaning just doing radio shows four and five a day, driving 250 miles. Right. You know, starting at six o'clock in the morning and ending at, you know, seven o'clock at night. Right. I've done blues clubs and festivals and rodeos. And, and what we used to laugh at is, yeah, obviously when you work with Neil Diamond, you don't stay at the Motel 6. Right. right? <laughs> and you don't play the local theater, which would have been the great gig six right. months before that, right? Mm-hmm. If I thought I was playing the, you know, whatever it is, you know, the RKO theater, I'd go, wow, this is great. And yeah. I'd drive past that and go to the United Center in Chicago. Exactly, to the arena. <laughs> so we had we had these running jokes with the band where the guys in the band would go, oh, you know, there's a there's a great little place for breakfast over here. And, you know, we'd be in the middle of nowhere, you know, Topeka, Kansas or something. And I'd say, oh, yeah, the Bluebird, you know, the Bluebird uh, Cafe or something. And then he'd go, yeah, how do you know about that? Have you played, you know, the United Center before? And I go, no, I played around the corner. See that horrible little blues club? That's where I played. That's where I know where the restaurant is. You yeah. know, you guys are used to this stuff. Yeah. So yeah, they know the feeling for sure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The first time I sort of uh, first time we went back to denver and played fiddler's green and mm-hmm. have you guys played that it's like an outdoor i don't even know if it's called that anymore but it's a big outdoor shed yeah and i'm on a tour bus and i just bawled yeah. you know just pulling into town i'm just like ah oh, I, I did it you mm-hmm. know somehow i did it <laughs> you know um it, it, it's interesting you know when you when you realize um i mean you and i at our most modest have to say we've accomplished something. Yeah. You know, you can't be afraid to say that because when you see some of the places we have played and will play, Mm -hmm. no shame and there's no knocking it, but you do have to look at it and go, I got a couple of feathers in my cap and this was worth, whether it was going to school or working those two jobs, you know, where I was mopping a floor and then running out and doing a gig. Uh, it, it, it It was a culmination to it that worked out okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the part that they can't take away from you. You know, like I could run out of gigs tomorrow, which, you know, I mean, we're, we're in the midst of a pretty scary time, you know, this could all go away tomorrow, but Mm -hmm. you can't change the fact that I, 
I did this, I played there. And, you know, and I think as musicians, those are our medals, you know, and it, even if they're just memories. Yeah. You know, or I have, you know, probably everyone has a pile of backstage passes. I have them spread all over the place. You know? Absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely funny that you say that because I have so many things that um, if you look at the laminate, Mm-hmm. You know what we call lammies. You know, sometimes <laughs> you look at the you look at the lammy and it'll say, um, I don't know, the Roanoke Blues Festival. To the casual passerby, looks at that and goes, "Wow, you must have played to twenty thousand people." No, I played <laughs> to seven people. Uh, you know, I played to seven people that stood on uh, that stood on a haystack for a couple of minutes, and that was about it. So, getting to like uh, uh, back to Neil Down for just a second, like. So he's a musician, mm-hmm. and so is he pretty particular about um, the parts that you're playing, and is he involved with all of that? Is there a musical director that handles that? or You know, when I was there... Um, or was he, I should say, I guess. Yeah, well, he he's... It's kind, of a, it's kind of a roundabout question, because the first thing they said to me when I got the gig was this. Neil knows what he wants to hear, and more importantly, he knows what he doesn't want, mm. right? Now, for a guy like me, that was great news. Because again, if somebody hands me a chart and says, just play this, well, I'm, I, I had to memorize the whole show. That's what I did. I memorized every note. Right. Um, right. And it's, you know, 45 songs or something. And I memorized mm-hmm. every note. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> what would happen would be this. Um, if, if it's okay for me to kind of give, you know, a little shout out to my bandmates, because they're just Absolutely. the greatest people. I mean, everybody in the band was kind of a legend. My, the drummer was Ron Tut. Ron Tut from Elvis, if nothing else. Oh, wow. Yeah. Ron, Ron Tut played on more hits I won't even go into his resume because we'll go too long, but Ron right. played on with everybody. Um, the background singers are my favorite people in the world, Maxine and Julia Waters, oh, yeah. who have done everything from Gonna Fly Now from Rocky, mm-hmm. the theme from uh, Soul Train, just everything all the way up to, you know, Adele just a couple of years ago. So it's not, not, not like right. they, you know, stopped working. Right. Uh, and they are just the most beautiful people in the world. I, I love them dearly and I, I keep in touch with them to this day. So here's all these kind of people on stage. Right. And Neil would um, would just say something like, you know that second verse, let's, uh, let's give it a breath before I come back and sing. Now, if you're reading, what that means is it's 13 bars or seven, something weird. Mm-hmm. And a person who might be a little too musical for his own good at that point, your initial response is, well, no, that means we're ending on a G sharp and we need to get back. Right. Okay. I can't really explain this, but I witnessed it a hundred times. Neil would say something like, you know, let's just give it a little breath because I want the audience a chance to respond. Mm. Now, Neil Diamond saying he wants the audience to respond, that's essentially, to me, is like Joe Montana telling you, how to run listen to joe montana (laughs) if you want to win a football game you know yes so we would all just kind of we got into the habit of going okay neil as sure as we're sitting here that night we would come out we'd play the song and we'd hold for that extra two bars whatever that supposedly weird thing is neil would put his hand up and wave to the audience and get a standing ovation he knew (laughs) that he needed that breath to acknowledge the audience, to acknowledge the band, whatever it was, he had, it was the magic touch. I I couldn't explain it. You'd have to see it. You just have to see it. So I would play out a little bit. I would play, you know, not, not overplay, but I'd play a couple of things. And, um, 
I had to immediately get out of the habit of saying, oh, is that okay? You know? Right. Because he would just, they say, no, no, he, he'll he tell you if he doesn't like it. Um, <laughs> so I just did probably 90% of the script, so to speak, you know, what they had been playing. Right. And then I'd add a little something. And if nobody threw something at me, it was good. Yeah. You know, that's kind yeah. of the way I looked at it. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of artists that are the same way. Just the only talk to you when you're doing something wrong <laughs> you know? <laughs> musically anyways but. i remember you telling me a great story about that i don't want to embarrass you again oh go ahead <laughs> I, I won't mention the artist i'll let you because if it's something okay but you said that there was one particular passage that you were playing mm-hmm. and you kind of blew it and you knew you blew it obviously you didn't need somebody and the musical director said something like only play what you can play <laughs> You, just play what you can. Yeah, do you, you know what I'm saying. Right? <laughs> I do remember that. And it was like my first pass, and I'm like, I'm just trying stuff, you know. Like, I, he's like, oh, you know, do something, okay? Yeah. Then, oh, okay, right. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. well that if, was Kazu Matsui. I'll, I'll say it. You okay. know, he was, uh, he, he was a tricky dude. <laughs> I mean, brilliant, you know, brilliant yeah. talent, but, but also Japanese. They're very direct people. Yeah. You know, they're, you know, we we used to tour over there a lot, and and. I had to teach the backstage director to say, please, because usually it was just like, stand by. Yeah, right. And I was like, who do you think you're talking to? You know, <laughs> like, stand by, please. That's yeah. how, you know, you know, be nice, man. You know, so, but you know, you learn to love it after a while because they're not going to be dishonest. Yeah. You know, everything that they're thinking is coming right out. Sure. It's, it's uh, after a while, it, it, once you get used to it, but you know. You probably told me that story 15 years ago. And <laughs> yeah, I, I, exactly. I promise you, I remember it. See, I told you, I can memorize a show of 45 songs. Yes, I remember yes. everything you ever said. <laughs> well, now I'm, now I'm nervous. Oh, you should be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm... Well, you know, along those lines, just to kind of tie these things together, you know, I, I, I take great pride in knowing what I can do and what I can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, I have never, this is not me being, uh, this is not false modesty on my part. I've never been a chops guy. Mm-hmm. I never took lessons. I never, so I just, I'm kind of a heart and soul guy and, you know, kind of a rock R and B guy. I'm, I'm not a jazz guy. I'm, I'm not flashy. And one time in a rehearsal, I did a little slap. Now I'm, it's, it's probably what I do worst. Okay. Mm-hmm. Playing left-handed and upside down, just the technicality right. of it is weird. And it's just not my thing, but I was kind of, of all things, my great buddy, Ron Tut, the drummer says to me, you should do that. And I said, Ron, Ron, who's played with every great bass player. And I went, Ron, uh-huh. not really my thing. I'm the new guy. And he just said, I think, I think Neil would like that. So we used to do the song Cherry Cherry mm-hmm. and, and everybody would take a solo in a rehearsal. And I have the recording of the rehearsal, which I'll probably have it buried with me. <laughs> I did my little version of a slap thing. Mm. All of our great bass player friends, you included, would listen to it and go, wow, that's not exactly accurate. <laughs> okay, it was, <laughs> wasn't my best performance. Neil, in the rehearsal, goes, wow, Billy, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> so I would do it on stage. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is really not about me. It's about Neil's ear and his connection with the audience. Yeah, my five friends that are sitting in the audience are going, oh, Bill, I don't know if I would have done that. The other 19,000 people loved it, right? Because <laughs> right. it was just, you know, something just a little different. Right. So I always pride myself on keeping the parameters pretty tight. Like, no, I would never do that. 
in a lot of other instances. Right. But this one just called for it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of felt like, you know, there are those actors that they're, they're a great Shakespearean actor and they just, they just want to go on stage and do a little comedy because they've never done it before. And, you know, they're, right. they're kind of looking like, I don't know how well I'm going to do with this, but I'm going to just push it. You know, mm -hmm. that's how I felt. It was here I am in front of all these people and I'm going to start trying to play like Eric Baines and it might not work out as well as it did. <laughs> so that was fun. I'm a I have to confess something. I, I love books, but I, I don't love reading. And it's, it's been something that I've, I've wrestled with since I was a kid. You know, I, I can read, I have read books, but they're very time consuming. And I've spent most of my time trying to build a music career, <laughs> which takes a lot of time. But one thing I definitely do a lot of is drive in LA traffic on my way to a gig. And there's a solution that combines those two situations, and that's called audible.com. Audible has thousands of audiobook titles, and you can listen offline anywhere, anytime. The app is free and can be installed on all smartphones and tablets. And they have just a ton of music-related titles, like All You Need to Know About the Music Business by Donald S. Passman, How Music Works by David Byrne, or Music Production Secrets by Calvin Carter. And you can get a free 30-day trial right now if you visit audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. That's audibletrial.com slash divebarrockstar. I'd like to take a second to thank you for listening to the Dive Bar Rockstar podcast. As a new podcast, getting the word out is a vital part of what it takes to keep the show on the road. Uh, or off the road, as the current case may be. If you would like to support the podcast... All you got to do is subscribe wherever you listen. And if you have an extra minute or two, please leave a review. You can also share and follow the podcast on your social media apps. Okay, enough begging. I hope you're having fun. And once again, thank you for listening. You know, this, this gig kind of came late in your life, you know. and Very and late. That must make you appreciate it more. Do you think if this came younger in your life, you would you'd be able to? Because it seems like you're a person who really is soaking in every minute of it, and, or it was, you know, when mm -hmm. it was touring and and being able to appreciate it for what it is. If that had come in your twenties, do you think it would have? I'm almost sure I wouldn't have appreciated it as much as much, yeah. because um, I have a couple of uh, those really poignant moments that it, it, they weren't they weren't huge in any other respect other than i remember when i was in new york i used to play Greenwich village all the time which is the mecca mm -hmm. of of music right and again i won't mention names but there was a guy that i knew a drummer who got one of the biggest gigs with one of the big pop stars of the 80s right mm -hmm. um in the middle of the tour they come home for a little while or the tour is over i forget exactly what the thing was and there i am on bleecker street and I see this guy, and I, I didn't know him well, but I, hey, Louie, how was the tour? And he says to me, great, you got a gig for me? <laughs> yeah. First right. words out of his mouth, because that tour is over. You have no promise of anything else. Mm -hmm. The star made $30 million. They're in no rush to go back. You have been making a decent living, but now all your contacts dried up. You don't have any club gig. You can't come home and just jump into those club gigs. And really, club gigs pay what they pay. So you can't say, hey, I'm demanding more money. Right. There's no yeah. more money to have. Right. So I've always been, I held on to that. And I remember thinking, when I get my shot, I'm going to hold on to it with both hands. <laughs> I'm going to make myself indispensable to these people. And I'm going to make sure that I have a ball. 
I'm going to be the most gracious rock star you've ever seen in your life. And I really followed up on that. I was the guy out there taking pictures, signing autographs, you know, mm-hmm. because I, I just felt like, well, no, I, I waited a long time to get here. Yeah. I, I'm going to make everything count. And when it's time to go, I'll go. But it, um, hitting, being able to tour the world first class yeah, with one of the greatest singer songwriters in history, when I was 55 and 59 years old, mm. was amazing. Yeah. Amazing. You know, yeah. and I could never, ever thank him. I, I speak to him once in a while. I have spoken to him, I should say, you know, over the last couple of years. And I, uh, at the risk of getting too emotional here, but I honestly said to him, I said, <clears throat> Neil, I will tell you this. If before I die, I hit the home run in the seventh game of the World Series, walk on the moon, and become president of the United States, on my tombstone, it's still going to say Neil Diamond's bass player. Because I wouldn't really care about those other things as much as this. And I do honestly feel that way. It changed my life. That's so great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, good for you, man. When I heard you got the gig, like no matter what you think, you, you just said in your story that you're not the guy for this gig. But it's, when I heard that you got the gig, my me, immediate thought was, that's perfect. This is a gig. This is a perfect gig. Man. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm just so happy about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And a lot of, you know, a lot of times you hear about guys getting gigs and you're like, oh, geez, why didn't I get that gig? Or why, why, what's that? Dude? That's not the right. This was like perfect. Well, thank you. you know, I, I, no, I mean, it's interesting because like I said, you know, you've done some cool gigs. I mean, you know, Dwight Yoakam is a pretty, is a pretty good gig. Um, yes. The Kiko Matsui gig was a great gig. You know, it was a, a different kind of gig. Yeah. Um, you've played with a bunch of my friends that I know from all different areas and all the, <laughs> in all the different bands, you know? Right. And, and so I, I always kind of kept tabs on what you were doing because it was a great thing because it was, it's a great feeling for me, uh, probably for you too. If I'm driving on Sunset, if I'm driving down Broadway in New York City, or if I'm driving down the Vegas Strip, it's great to look at the billboards and go, wow, Shania Twain. Hey, that's our buddy Derek Frank who was on yeah. here. You know, yeah. great bass player, great dude. You know, yeah. oh, oh, Dwight Yoakam's playing over there. Oh, yeah, that's my buddy Eric. Maybe I'll stop in. I don't care about free tickets. Let's let's go grab a burger. You know, right. it, yeah. it's almost like the community, the musical right. community at that level is so is so tight, yeah. and and you know, and so. Uh, so so giving yeah that everybody's happy to see everybody's happy Mm. to see somebody go up the line well i think you nailed it earlier too when it's like (laughs) it's more than just being a great player you you've got to be a decent human being to like be on tour with people you're moving in you know you're 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 essentially a roommate as well over the sometimes the worst of circumstances you know you got to be be able to roll with the punches and be a cool nice person so when you get to certain level most guys are nice guys you yeah know, when it comes to musicians yeah you know. yeah i mean artists who knows that's a different thing but uh. <laughs> it, def- it definitely is yeah i mean my 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 credo has always been i'm not a great musician but i do a great job you know mm-hmm. so th- again i mean i'm i'm a pretty cocky son of a bitch about what i what i right. do yeah I, and i think you're selling yourself way short by the way but well, but, I mean, um, but it's an, it's a it's a it's a refreshing attitude to hear. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, I I kind of live and die by my ears, not my fingers. There are guys that can play. I mean, we go to the Nam show, and I just watch these guys. I, I watch YouTube, and I see these twelve year old kids. Yeah. And go, oh my goodness, I would never be that. 
and I, I never will be that. So I make it up hopefully in, in other ways, you know, but, um, it's a bit like losing one sense. You know, if you, if your eyesight starts to dim, probably your hearing gets a little better, that kind of stuff. <laughs> right. Right. I just yeah. looked at it. Well, if I'm not going to, if I'm not going to be the chops guy mm. who can read and play everything, I'm going to have to be the heart and soul guy. I have to be the nice guy. Maybe I'll be the funny guy. Yeah. I'll be the guy who keeps everybody light <laughs> in the hotel lobby or in the airport while we're waiting, you know? Right. Um, but and you it, also have a, a great voice. You're also a singing bass player, which, um, did you sing on the Neil Diamond stuff or? No, they actually, um, told me right away. They, they really didn't need me. We had Maxine and Julia Waters right. singing. So that's kind of like, that's the two person choir. You know, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> but that's a, another great, you know, combination. There's not a lot of good singing bass players, honestly, even in LA, you know, there's, there's a handful for yeah. sure, but that's such a awesome. It almost makes up for, okay, I don't play upright or, you know, I don't do this or that, you know, cause I sing as well. So it's yeah. like, well, uh, th th that's enough. You know what I mean? Like that's a pretty amazing thing. And that, now you're filling two chairs with one guy yeah. and, and, uh, and, and the fact that you sing it makes your bass playing more musical, you know, and sometimes that's what's needed. Yeah. I mean, Again, I, I, I love cross-referencing your other shows because I'm a big fan of your show. And congratulations on this whole <laughs> well, thing. thank you, man. <laughs> you know, when we talk about singing bass players, for these last however long it's been, if someone calls me and I can't do it, my two recommendations are Eric Baines, Jennifer Oberly, who's my dear friend, right? She yeah. sings like a bird. She's wonderful. She plays. Right. Um, and there aren't an awful lot of people, right. which is where you get into that sticky part because you go, there's this guy's a great bass player, but he doesn't sing. Right. And I can't sub for him. If he's doing some uh, jazz gig, some fusion gig where they're reading, I'm not the guy. Right. You know, I would, I'll give you that one, but that's not me. <laughs> uh, I'm the guy who, what my biggest strength is, honestly, is like the club gig, the wedding gig, where you have to know a million songs. Right. And oh, oh my God, the, you know, the bass player got stuck. You got two flat tires. Yeah. I'm in at the last minute, no rehearsal. No one has to yell out a key. I'll sing the high harmony, the low harmony. I know right. a million songs. That's my strength. You know, just keep me in keep me in my wheelhouse and we'll be fine. Right. But that's great to know about yourself too. You know, and a lot of guys, you know, I was just reading a bass player about uh, Lee Sklar and he's doing an interview and, you know, I'd love to have him on the show so I could actually ask him about it. But he said he doesn't play with a pick. He doesn't slap and pop. You know, mm -hmm. he's one of the most <laughs> most recorded bass players of all time. Yeah. You know, legendary dude. But he's another guy that's just, this is what I do and this is what you hire me for. And and that's important, you know. It's odd. Well, I, I won't say odd, but of all people for you to mention, um, Leland Sklar is, yeah, one of the most recorded guys. Funniest yeah. guys, if you know him. I've met him once. Yeah. Well, we're, we're, you know, we're, I'll say we're pseudo friends in the sense that we don't hang out together, but we certainly know each other. Right. And when I first got the gig with Neil, a couple of the guys in the band, unbeknownst to me, called Leland and said, Hey, do you know this guy, Bill Sinke? And, and Lee said, Yeah. And they said, Well, you know, it looks like he's going to be the guy. And Leland, love you. Thank you. Said, Oh no, Bill's going to fit right in, right? So a couple of months later, uh, I go to this Christmas show that Peter Asher was involved with. Yeah. A bunch of great players. It was Judith Owen, if you know. Judith Owen, yeah. I've been to that show as well. Maybe we were even there the we same were. night. We actually were. were we were. Yeah, we were yeah. there. 
Because uh, I had just done a gig with Jeffrey, Jeffrey Allen Ross, and he was playing yeah, with, with Peter. Exactly. Yeah, so, Jeff yeah. is my uh, my work wife. So <laughs> yeah. Leland is on stage, kind of tuning right. up. Got off the stage, ran into the audience, and gave me a hug. I went, Bill, man, we heard about the Neil gig. Tom Hensley, the keyboard player, longtime keyboard player, said, I spoke to Tom and I said, yeah, everybody was really happy with you. I said, leave, man. That, that is just the greatest thing. Because here's this room, 250 people, 300 people all turn around saying, who's the guy with the ponytail that knows Leland? It's Clark. <laughs> this woman sitting next to me says, oh, apparently you're playing with Neil Diamond. Congratulations. And I said, well, let me tell you, that guy right there, Lee, I said, I should probably send him a royalty check because I've stolen every lick he's ever played, right? <laughs> and the woman says, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. I said, oh, do you know him? She says, yeah, I'm, I'm his wife. <laughs> and I went, well, it's a <laughs> good thing I didn't say something oh, you know, wow. horrific. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I subbed for you on, I think it was you or Jen. I think you were both kind of doing the Peter Asher game. Yeah. And uh, so I subbed for somebody and... Um, uh, and it was the first time I had done it. And so I went to Jeffrey Allen Ross's house. He's a mm -hmm. phenomenal multi-instrumentalist singer from was bad finger yeah. forever. Really amazing voice, you know, and, and everything about him. But anyway, um, and he had mentioned like, yeah, we called Lee Sklar and he couldn't do it. And I was like, wow, I'm on a list with Lee Sklar, you know, <laughs> like yeah. if I've done nothing else with, you know, with my life, then, uh, I'm on that list. Okay. I'm, I'm somebody. But it's good that you can say that, though, because, you know, I think a lot of people would might look at you and just go, well, obviously you're with Dwight Yoakam. You're doing some, you know, you're doing some pretty big gigs here. Right. Kind of with the, with the presumption that you ran out of idols, right? That you don't look to somebody that, <laughs> that you don't put on a record and go, my goodness, what a great record, right. you know, from somebody else. And I always kind of giggle at that because we all have those people that you just go, man, I saw this show at, you know, at the Staples Center, but I can't wait to go to that little jazz club in Glendale and see that drummer. Cause this guy, I'm going to sit there in a room with 13 people, but this guy is killing it. Yeah. We all have idols and people that we look up to. Right. And when I see those guys, I'm a little kid. I'm not yeah. too cool to be a fan. I'm I'm like the I'm like the, the the teenage girls in the front row at Chase Stadium with the Beatles. I'm, <laughs> I'm just sitting there and I'm mesmerized. Yeah, and I I think For some sure. people kind of leapfrog over that. They think no, you probably don't feel that way anymore. I go no, I'm probably feeling more like it. So um, you mentioned that you're a left-handed bass player, and I, I want to talk about that for a second because. To me, there's kind of three ways you can do it. You can just learn to play right-handed, mm -hmm. or you can turn it over and restring it, and put the, you know, the, the low strings on top, or right. you can do what you did and other guys have done, just turned it over. So what, what was the impetus for that? Why? why Essentially, that there are three ways to do it. The third one is the most impractical <laughs> and the most expensive <laughs> and the most ridiculous. So if that gives you any indication of, of what's going on in my head, uh, you know, it's probably the same story as a lot of other people. I was a little kid. I mentioned my older brother, Steve had a guitar. Hmm. He went into the service. And I picked up the guitar when I was, I don't know, seven or eight, you know, clunk, clunk, clunk. I do remember this part. It always gets a laugh. I remember the first thing, if you remember the song, you know, great song by the Stones, Paint It Black. There's kind of a drone uh, sitar. Down, 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 down. Right? Mm -hmm. yeah. I somehow learned to kind of slop around with that lick. 
And uh, that's all I played. I didn't know any chords. I didn't know any notes. I was playing that. I was eight years old. Who cares, right? Right. Um, one of my friends or, you know, one of my friend's older brothers, someone who's old enough to realize, said, you know, you everything about what you're doing is wrong. You should flip the guitar over and play right-handed. Or, And my honest response was, I already learned how to play painted black. Well, I'm not turning back now. <laughs> I had no idea that there were 45 years ahead of me that I would be playing, you know, professionally. Wow. And I just kept going. And I didn't play it for a little while. And then I played a little bit. And um, I was playing guitar for a while. And as I like to say, I was, you know, I was, I came from the school where you make as much noise as possible. So <laughs> I would play in an acoustic duo, which I love. Mm. All the other acoustic duos were playing Neil Young, Cat Stevens, whatever in, in the seventies. I was in a duo that we were doing like Hall and Oates and Stevie Wonder and Chicago. Like we wow. were, we were reimagining songs before reimagining was a term. Mm. And I loved everything about it because what would happen I can pick up your right-handed guitar and just flip it upside down. Mm -hmm. So right. if you and I were playing as a duo, which maybe we should do sometime, mm -hmm. when you're playing an E and I'm playing an E, it sounds different. It's almost like a piano chord. My major sevenths are a different fingering. I do weird stuff. Yeah, It's just a different tonality, mm -hmm. you know? And Interesting. so it we developed this thing. And so essentially what happened was um, I became the guy that it wasn't that I was a great guitar player, but people went, oh yeah, the left-handed upside down guy. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was kind of my claim to fame. You know, some people had a mohawk, right? And you, <laughs> you could see that from 50 yards away. Well, right. I was the left-handed upside down guy and, yeah. and it kind of became my, um, my tag, my moniker, you right. know? So I didn't, uh, I don't recommend it. <laughs> To anybody, uh, I have to have all of my guitars reworked and customized. Mm. Either I have to buy them from the factory. Interesting. I go to a guitar store. I play the right-handed model and then order yeah. the left-handed model and have it all switched. So you have to change uh, the nut. You right. have to change yeah. the saddle. You have to change the pickups, the angle of the pickups. Wow. It's not a simple thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, some some luthiers love me because they go, wow, this is something different because I've never done this before. And other guys right. just hate me. They just go, why Why are you doing this to me? <laughs> like I spent years designing this bass. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> now I've got to undesign it all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Let's talk about your book. Because yes. it's almost, uh, you, you brought me one, which is awesome, a physical book. Because I've had it for years on my phone. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a fan as well. I appreciate that. Um, but it, it seems to become kind of a calling card you know, for you, how, how many books do you bring with you on a, on a, on a regular journey throughout the day? <laughs> I have them in the, I, honestly, I always have a couple in the car. <laughs> um, cool. I call it the most expensive business card I've ever had because I really didn't sell a lot of books, but it was the best investment I ever made because yeah. again, I was the guy with the book. Right. Right. So you went and auditioned 50 people. Oh, the left-handed guy with the book. Yeah, the book was funny. Let's uh, let's give him a call. Right. Um, and it is. It's a hilarious book. It's really great. Thank you. Uh, it's a lot of, it's just stories from from your life, you know, and, and, and lessons. And, and uh, uh, how long did it take to write it? Um, Besides a whole lifetime. Yeah. Well, you know, it was an interesting thing. Um, when I first started writing it, I think I wrote, oh, I think it was about 80 pages 
in two months. And I thought, well, this is going to be the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. Mm. I spoke to another author, not a musician. And the guy mm. said to me, you know, there's something about a book that if you really do it from your heart, it's probably going to take you five years. And I said, oh, no, you don't know what you're talking about because <laughs> I am the smartest man in the world. Right. I've written 80 pages in two months, which means I can write 160 in four months and this will go, you know, right. and with this, uh, this will be a piece of cake. It was five years. Wow. It didn't take me five years of struggle. It took me two months to write 80 pages and then I did nothing for four years. Really nothing. Uh, I couldn't even tell you why. I don't know if it was writer's block or I just forgot about it or I, I don't know what. And then at a certain point, I sat down and started reading what I had, you know, revisiting. Mm -hmm. And I, I honestly was reading it through the eyes of maybe the casual observer as opposed to the author. And I was reading and I said, you know, I actually have a voice here. I, and that's a weird thing to understand as a writer. Mm -hmm. I'm actually, this sounds like me. This sounds the way I talk. It's got attitude. It's got some bluster. <laughs> um, some of it's funny and some of it is, you know, I know that we're not on camera, but when I put my hands kind of like, hey, listen up, like, mm -hmm. I kind of have right. some of that attitude where like, okay, you know, we told a couple of jokes, I told a couple of funny stories, let's get down to business. You have to practice. And I don't want to hear about marketing schemes or the girl wearing the short skirt or, or the guy saying, hey, if I get tattoos, no, forget that. Sit down and practice, you know? Mm -hmm. I found that I had this voice and as I was reading it, I said, I need to get back to this. Well, in those next maybe three months, I cranked out 200 pages. I rolled out of bed and didn't even splash water on my face. <laughs> I rolled out of bed at six in the morning and stumbled into the other room and started, I was writing, my, my fingers couldn't keep up with my brain. Wow. And um, it was a brilliant experience. It really was the most enlightening, invigorating, uh, at the same time, meditative and energizing. Um, it was, it, because it's your heart and soul. Mm -hmm. And when I was talking to that friend of mine who was actually like a, he was an author, he was a lawyer and wrote some legal book. And he said, no, you know what happened? Um, some of it was just text and facts and figures. But when I got into writing from my heart, it was easier, but it took a long time to get there. You know, you, you, right. you didn't- if You kind of have to develop that. Exactly. Because you had to find that voice. You had right. to find, if I'm just writing numbers, well, that's, I'm, you know, that, that's easy. Right. So it took me that long, but essentially- it took me five years with a four and a half year gap kind of thing. Right. You know, if that yeah. makes sense. The book is called The Amazing mm -hmm. Adventures of a Marginally Successful Musician. Now that you're you're clearly not marginally successful, you're you're like a <laughs> legit successful, you know, musician. Not that you weren't before. You know, it's 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 all in jest, you know. Right. But um how does that change the way that you view the book and, and would you have written anything different well, knowing that I don't know, knowing that this was coming or how you written it now? I'm sure I would have done a lot of things different. Matter of fact, um, people have been asking me about writing a sequel forever. And, gotcha. and um, my, really the Neil Diamond fan club, <laughs> they, they send me notes every day. They really do. They're the greatest fans in the world. That's cool. <clears throat> and the, the thing for me was this, um, if you were to make the movie analogy, what's the most standard line? The most standard line is, well, the movie wasn't bad, but it wasn't, a good as, wasn't as good as the book. Right. right. And then when you go further, things that have sequels, uh, it wasn't as good as the original. It was cool. They had bigger stars, but uh, there was more graphics, the, you know, the car chase, but that original story, I don't know, you know, that right. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. 
it makes you a little gun shy mm. um, to kind of reboot my own book and go, oh, I actually started writing a sequel. And what I did was, and here is, uh, if there's a red flashing light and a siren that will indicate to the listeners that here comes some more uh, shameless self-promotion on my part. <laughs> <laughs> I have a special, a special sound effect. I'll, Please, I'll oh yes, <laughs> um, it'll probably be the sound of a thousand people groaning. Oh, here he goes again. Uh, I did something recently called the Groove Program, which is my own program that it's like an online masterclass. Mm -hmm. It's an extension of the book, and what I did was, um, it's all video. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I did was I added some written chapters. Um, I didn't want to try to do two hundred pages, so what I did was. I would do something about recording. And at the end of the video chapter, I would put a written chapter of two pages. I did another one on touring and said, essentially, look, not everybody's going to tour with Dwight Yoakam. Not everybody's going to tour with Neil Diamond. Not everybody's going to tour on that level. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of things you could learn about doing the van tour, which I've done a thousand van tours. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Loved it. <laughs> you know, just couldn't, um, couldn't get enough of it. And I was you know, I would break it down and put some of it in writing. And so I thought that was my way of kind of paying a little homage, so to speak, to my own book without writing an entire other book. Right. So right. I made references to some of the things that yeah. have happened to me since. And <clears throat> that's great. Yeah. It's, it's been a lot of fun. I mean, it's a bit of a reinvention. You've been also doing public speaking. Yeah. So did the book sort of lead to that or open it doors did. for that? As it well? did. It did. And isn't the Groove program kind of all, it's tied up with the public speaking as well? And Yes. That's all. Apparently you have done your research. <laughs> yeah. This is all tied together and essentially lying in wait until the earth purges itself right. from, <laughs> you know, from this thing that we have. Yes. Um, I'm waiting patiently. You know, I'm not, I'm not pushing anything, but fear of public speaking is the number one fear that people have. Right. I've heard that. And Jerry Seinfeld does a bit about the number one fear is public speaking. The number two fear is death. People actually <laughs> fear public speaking wow. more than death, which means the yeah. poor guy giving the eulogy would rather be in the casket. That's his bit, right? <laughs> so public speaking just never scared me. Mm -hmm. I, I enjoyed yeah. it and I'm okay with heckling you know, cause yeah. I, cause it's the bar gig, right? There yeah, I am. Absolutely. There you have it. I'm naked. In you... fact, I think the first time I heard come for the music, stay for the comedy was from you. Probably. <laughs> On stage at the Brass Elephant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, the drunk would say something and the rest of the band would go, uh oh, and I'd go, oh, yeah. I'm up for this one. Right. You know, and I would tattoo the guy verbally. <laughs> so me doing the public speaking thing was one of the greatest experiences. And, you know, when you referenced earlier, when you pulled into like one of the big you know, the big shed. Yeah. Right. And you said you right, honestly brought you to tears. Yeah. Um, I'm going to try to tell the story without crying. But... <laughs> well, it's been said on other podcasts. I'm the Barbara Walters of, of podcast hosts. So. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, I went to Nashville. I love Nashville. I've been there on and off for years. So I did a, a series of public speaking. Some, you know, some were kind of smaller. Nothing was big, but one mm. of the things was at Tennessee State University. It wasn't like a big theater or anything. It was two music classes together. So I don't know, 40, 50 people. I'd, they're all young. They're all 19 and 20 years old. Mm -hmm. So the professor introduces me. Nobody claps. It's not like, ladies and gentlemen, and people, you know, there's a bunch of kids looking at me. So I started talking and I started out, uh, I guess the word would be professorial, right? 
I'm trying to sound like a professor because I'm in school. Mm -hmm. That lasted about 30 seconds because I realized that's not me and they're not digging this. Right. So guys are looking at their laptops. People are kind of chewing gum, looking out to the side. And I realized right away, I know I can do this. So what I did was this. I, um, I took a breath and I just discarded everything I was going to say. And I said, anybody know what endorsements are? Endorsements is when companies give you free stuff. I had everybody's attention, <laughs> right? I really did. This guy has his laptop and I see there's a bumper sticker on his laptop that says Vic Firth. Now, again, for those of you, Vic Firth is a, a, a drumstick company. Drumstick. And I said, and this guy's not really listening. And I said, so for instance, you know, if you're a drummer and you need sticks, well, sticks get expensive, don't they? And he looks up, I said, you play your cards right, you get an endorsement, they send you sticks, they send you strings. Now I have everybody's attention. Right. And I realize I'm talking to 19 year olds, 12 bucks means something, right? You know, yeah, for sure. <laughs> These guys are sitting college here. kids, no less. So we're talking and all of a sudden I'm not looking at a clock. You know, the professor comes over and says, look, everybody, um, we're kind of running out of time, but this room is empty. So those of you that want to hang out, if you have another class, go ahead. But those of you that want to hang out, hang out. Well, out of 42, 35 stayed, wow. right? We stay another hour. Now I'm in two hours. I've, I'm done with two hours. Another professor walks in and says, look, uh, we need the room and the room next door is also taken, but these kids don't want to leave. Do you want to just hang out in the hall and talk to them? <laughs> I stood out in the hall and I said, I'm going to tell you guys right now, I will stay till every last one of you has asked your questions. And if I don't have the answer, I'll tell you how to get them. <clears throat> this one guy who had kind of a um, a Latin accent is talking to me and he's saying things like, Bill, you can't imagine the, my heart is swelling because you've, you've speak with such passion and your love for music. And he's being very poetic and very, so we're now into two and a half hours that I was supposed to be there for 45 minutes. Some of the other kids who went to class now came back and are standing in the hallway with me. And I'm thinking, Am I now being a distraction because these kids have to go someplace? Right. Professor number three comes over and says, Bill, if you're not doing anything, I'd love to take you out to lunch. I said, uh, sure. He says, this young man with the accent is my son. He said, I've never seen him so excited. <laughs> okay. I'm flipping out because I'm thinking I'm the guy who walked in and, and went from trying to sound educated and trying to sound lofty. And I just went, you know what? Forget this. I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to talk the way I talk. I'm just going to do my thing. So we go outside to the parking lot and, you know, kind of like, okay, follow me. I don't even know where I'm going. I'm out in the parking lot. I call my girlfriend in Los Angeles and I said, she said, oh, how did it go? And this is what it sounded like. I went, honey, these kids, I started crying where, I don't know about you, but I get to, when I get that emotional, I don't even know if there's tears, but I can't even catch my breath. Right, I, right. I was so moved that they were so taken that I was communicating like that. Mm -hmm. I had to sit there for a couple of minutes and compose myself and then drive. And these guys took me out to lunch. So I'm hoping to go back. I probably would have gone back if this last five months had been different. Right. And I'm hoping to go. Yeah. It was one of the most incredibly stirring moments where I thought I had that aha moment where you know what, if you told me I was going to do this three days a week, 
Yeah. I don't think I'd be disappointed with life. No. I, th- I think this would be pretty cool. So that yeah. the public speaking thing, it wasn't a big stage. It wasn't a huge audience, but it was a pretty powerful thing. Yeah. Well, you, you're probably meant to be a teacher. For a guy who doesn't <laughs> read and plays upside down and never took a lesson. Well, you know? there's, there's other things to know. I, I started out teaching a drum line, mm-hmm. marching drum drums, yeah. you know, uh, right out of high school. Like in high school, I was teaching. And then there came, and I and I was, I was go, I went to Berkeley and then I came back, I was teaching more. And then I went to college in Denver for a minute and I was still teaching. And then there came this point where I had to make a choice. It was like, Am I going to continue on this path of teaching and stay in school and 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 do that, or am I am I going to continue as a bass player and try to make it, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever that is, you know? Um, and I, I at some point I just thought, well, if I don't try, I'm going to regret that forever, right? Um, and I could always go back to teaching or whatever. But in the meantime, I didn't finish my degree, you know, all those things that w- would be required to really do it yeah you know and so as life and time has gone on it's like this this base thing took off but i don't ever i'm never sure that i made the right choice because you know i've stood on stage in front of eighty thousand people Mm -hmm. and played my bass and had heard my name called over it and it's never as fulfilling as watching one kid go oh yeah you know yeah it's a hard thing to explain it's a brilliant thing and the other thing is just the idea of what you, what we call making it. So in my days, I have played with all these 60s bands. Right. One of which, Peter Asher, who I still work with, you mm-hmm. know, when I when I can. Yeah, amazing guy. Look him up. Oh, it's, yeah. It's yeah. way too much to talk about. And we, me and Jennifer, Joe Overly talked at length yeah. about it, I think, but incredible. I played it once and yeah. uh, unbelievable guy. Oh, no, a matter of fact, I recommended you for that right. gig because I recommended Jennifer when I got the Neil gig. That was how that right. whole thing, and, and I'm they were so pleased with both of you, which is yet even another branch of this story because the idea of sending a great sub makes me feel great and makes me look better as opposed to them saying, hey, you can never sub out anymore. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. No, no. I mean, one of the greatest experiences. But, you know, the idea of making it, um, I remember uh, playing in Las Vegas, playing with a a great band. Jerry and the Pacemakers was one of those bands that came over in the 60s with, again, with with the Beatles. And it was me and and Jeff Ross, Jeff Allen Ross. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're doing the sound check and uh, one of the road crew guys who I don't know, they're not traveling with us, right? Comes right. over and says, man, the band sounds great. I said, oh, thank you. You know, and he goes, yeah, you know, I know these songs. And he kind of laughed and said, I know these songs because, you know, from my parents, because he's a younger guy. Uh-huh. And I'm laughing. And then he said, so when did you realize you made it? <laughs> and I'm thinking from his perspective, with all due respect to Jerry and the Pacemakers, is that, is that really what you would call making it? From his perspective, he's like, no, right. I love Jerry and the Pacemakers. I have all the records. I've been listening to them since I was a little kid. My dad, you, you brought me up on it. And what it reminded me of, and this is a, a different story, but my very dear friends, uh, Peter and Tina, they their children are my godchildren. I came over to their house one time to visit. Peter, who was in, at the time, I guess was maybe 40, he and his wife, and they have kids that are six and eight years old. They're on the phone with their dad, who is 65 years old in Europe. I walk in the door. Peter's on the phone with his dad and says, oh, yeah, Bill just walked in. He's having dinner with us. And the dad says, is that the guy who played with Jerry and the Pacemakers? Peter and (laughs) Tina say, who is Jerry and the Pacemakers? (laughs) 
the dad, the grandfather, essentially in this scenario, the grandfather says, they were the biggest band. Are you kidding me? I grew up. I love them. Oh my God, this is so great. I'm the rock star to him right. because I'm playing with Jerry and the Pacemakers. Yeah. In the same time, in this 45 seconds, they said to me, didn't you do some recording a couple of weeks ago? And I said, oh yeah, I, yeah, I was fortunate enough. I did, you know, it was one song, but I played with a great band called The Fray. Yeah. Who had a couple From of Denver. huge hits. Yeah. Yeah. I did a song with them produced wow, by Peter cool. Asher. Here's the dad on the phone, the 65-year-old dad in Europe saying, who's the fray? And the 40-year-old couple are going, are you kidding me? We have all their records. We saw them in concert. I had just that day, literally that day, come from the studio, again with Peter Asher and Jeffrey Allen Ross. I came right from the studio over there and they said, well, what were you doing today? And I mm -hmm. said, well, we were doing this kids, This there was a kids show. I don't know if it was on Nickelodeon or one of those kind of things. It maybe it was even streaming. Mm -hmm. It was a kid's thing called the Naked Brothers. Mm -hmm. Grandfather on the phone. Who's the Naked Brothers? Parents. Who are the Naked Brothers? The two kids jumping up and down. <laughs> they watched it every day. Right. Okay. So <laughs> in the span of this 90 seconds that I'm in there with my friends in my friend's living room, right. there's a guy that I had never met 8,000 miles away who is one audience. The parents who are younger than I am had the second audience, right. and then the kids, and nobody knows each other's music. <laughs> what you're saying as making it right. is completely different from anybody you might speak to, because yeah. they're looking at you absolutely. saying, oh my goodness, Kiko Matsu, I have all that stuff. That's yeah, the smooth jazz stuff. Yeah. You know, so. yeah. Which is another thing I kind of like about your book. It, it more focuses on like being a working musician versus being a rock star it's not like how to become a rock star it's like how to you know in a sense like just being able to make your living playing music is you've made it you know on some level you know you're, you're uh on whether whatever level it is if that's what you get to do every day and and feed your family and sure pay your rent like that's that's a pretty awesome thing you know well, look, man, this is an hour interview and we're about two hours in. Are so. we? So, so the, let's do part two as know, soon as possible. Right? I know. No, but it's been so awesome. This has been just such a great conversation. You're full of awesome stories. As I did know. warn you. I said, bring a second microphone. I'll yeah. wear out the first one. There's no... It's true. And I knew it. And it's, 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 it's a roller coaster of emotions sure. lately, you know, and I've just today I was just like, I'm tired. And, but I just knew and I was like, but I'm not going to have to work that hard tonight because, oh, no. you know, besides us just knowing each other for 20 years, sure. and, you know, and I know that you're full of <laughs> so many awesome stories. And I'm like, you know what? I've got four and a half pages of notes, but I'm probably going to need one. <laughs> I'll come back next year. So thank you for, for providing the energy and the stories and the awesomeness and for being such a great human. And, uh, you know, no matter what you think, I think you're a great <laughs> bass player. <laughs> you know, you're a great singer and uh, you're a great dude. And, and and, um, I mean, I'm just, it's, it's, it's great knowing you, man. No, well, right back at you. And congratulations on the show. Cause I truly, you know, I watch it, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I listen to it every, every time and, and, um, you're like the perfect guy for this and, and well, thank you. It, it, all of our mutual friends, I'm, I'm so proud of all of them for their successes and being able to come on and talk about it and let, let's do it again. And let's, uh, yeah, let's, absolutely. let's find a reason to get together. Maybe we'll uh, come in this great studio of yours and write something or record something amazing. or we'll figure absolutely. something out. Awesome. Well, thanks, man. I'm waving goodbye to everybody as we go. <laughs> the man of many stories. That's my new name for Bill, but lots of great stuff. The title of this episode is going to be called We Leave on Sunday. 
because I think that's a really important lesson and it's happened to me and it is kind of a part of being a touring musician is that you've got to be able to jump when, when it's, when it's time, you've got to jump on those opportunities. And I've had situations where, and I'm sure Bill was in this situation, you know, we're working musicians. So I've had a situation where it's a big tour. I've got a month of rehearsal and two months of touring, which means I now have to get out of my next three months worth of gigs you know, which is another reason it's good to have subs. And if you're moving out here, it's great to meet people that are, that play your instrument because they need subs if they're touring people. But I've had a lot of, a couple of situations with friends and colleagues, people that have moved out here and, and want to start touring. And they tell me this and that's great. And then an opportunity comes up and I call them and say, we're leaving in a week and a half. And they're, well, I, I can't do that. I got this job and that job. And I mean, well, that's, that's most of the time how this stuff happens. So you need to keep yourself in a position where you can jump at any point. And sometimes you're going to burn bridges and sometimes, and a lot of times you're not because everyone understands. And, and some of these tours are big money and big opportunities. And if that's what you want to be, people will understand. Sometimes they won't, you know, but that's sort of, you got to keep your eye on the ball. You know, the other thing I think is, is a good lesson. And Bill's a great example of this. He doesn't read. And I talk a lot about college and the importance of that. And that's true. You know, it's going to get you just more gigs, but the other alternative is to know a million songs. And there are definitely guys that, that are like that. And Bill's one of them. So, you know, if I hand you a book of charts on a wedding gig or something and you just know every song, it's, that's great, you know, and he has great ears as well. Even if he doesn't quite know how to play a song or never played a song before he's heard it, he knows how it goes. And, you know, that's a, another viable thing and something you should just have anyways. You got to work on your repertoire and you also have to know, repertoire repertoire i don't know well i'm gonna look that up but you also need to know whichever town you're living in there's probably going to be a different set of tunes that you know i know when i first moved out to la i got a gig with a a cover band and they weren't the best and the gigs that they were playing weren't the best the money wasn't the best but they had 12 sets of music that they played on because they would do like seven or like five nights in a row and i looked at the list and they were all the songs that i was seeing on all these other people's set lists so i'm like you know what for one i even though the money was not that much i i had just moved here i need whatever money i can get and so I'm going to take the gig for that, but I'm also going to learn all the songs that I'm going to need for every other gig in this, in this city, it seemed like. So learn a million songs and make sure you're learning the right ones. Fiddler's Green Amphitheater opened in 1988 in Denver, Colorado. I saw many shows there when I was a kid. Um, so that's another reason it was so emotional to be coming back to Denver to play the big venue. Um, but it changed its name in 2010 to Comfort Dental amphitheater for three years and it's now it's now once again called fiddler's green amphitheater so check out a show once they start up again and these type of outdoor venues are known to us in the touring biz as sheds so that's what i was talking about so we mentioned taxi and taxi.com is an organization that uh, basically finds music for publishers it's a tip sheet so you join become a member and you can they'll give you a list of what people are looking for and you can either write music for the list because usually there's a deadline that's two or three weeks out or if you have a catalog of music you can submit what you already have and then they have a panel of 
of judges, basically, and they're super qualified uh, to make sure that what Taxi is passing on is specifically what the publishers want. So it's a good opportunity for the right writer to get some music placed in TV or film, or you can get signed. You know, there's sometimes there's labels looking for artists. So anyway, check it out, Taxi.com. And I really hope you enjoyed this show. Wow, you've made it to the end. I'm hoping it's because you completely enjoyed yourself and are now filled with knowledge and inspiration to move forward with your dreams. If that is the case and you would like to stay informed of new episodes, live events, and general news, please go to divebarrockstar.com and sign up for the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or complaints about anything you hear on the show, please email me at fanmail at divebarrockstar.com and you may even end up on the show. We at the Dive Bar Rockstar Podcast with all of our hearts, thank you for listening and remember, it's all about dreams. Dreams.